So this week on the podcast, I have Hope Thurgo. She is the author of Stand Tall, Little Girl and an award-winning, multi-award-winning mental health campaigner and public speaker. So hello. That's a pretty good intro. Like, you've done a lot. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, quite a lot, I guess. Yeah, I work, yeah, very hard. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's evident. I've been following you on Instagram for a while now and like the passion that you have for what you do is so like it's just infectious really um so yeah tell me a little bit about you and um kind of what you do and yeah let's go um so I work full-time doing mental health campaigning so basically working with schools and corporates um and then also do a lot of work with the government so talking about eating disorders and mental health more broadly and then with the government focusing much more on diagnosis and policy change and making sure that everyone can get the support they need but also that people know that they can get support and that it is out there they have to fight for it sometimes but actually you can get to a place where you can recover again um i think for me when i was growing up and was really struggling with anorexia i didn't know to talk to about it and I didn't know kind of I just didn't know what it was and how to explain myself and so I think for me going into schools is why that's so crucial is that actually we can talk to young people about mental health and help them to have some understanding of it as well that's amazing and so you kind of brushed a little bit on on your experience there but is that what is is your experience with anorexia the thing that made you want to go into this or have you always been quite passionate about kind of changing the way things are and uh, standing up for what you believe in um so I'm, I've always been a very like justice driven person and sometimes I think it is slightly annoying that I'm like that um yeah and I think it annoys other people as well because I get so settled and think and I'm like justice all the way um but I've always I've always wanted to help people so when I was growing up I thought I'd be like a social worker um and working with young people and stuff. Um, but back in 2016, I relapsed with my anorexia. And when I came through my relapse, um, the way it was treated by the NHS was really bad. Um, and it really frustrated me. And I felt like it was this complete injustice, the way that I'd been treated. And I realized that actually I was really lucky because I've got a supportive friends and family around me who know how to deal with my eating and they could support me through that relapse but a lot of people don't have that support. Um, And the other thing I realized when I came through that was actually the lack of understanding around eating disorders in that people think you have to be sick then to have an eating disorder, but you don't. Um, And that also people kind of have this like idea in their head of what recovery is. And you kind of constantly, like your recovery is constantly getting better and better and better. But actually the reality is it's not like that. Like you go through ups and downs. Everyone goes through ups and downs with their mental health. And when you've got like a mental health problem, it's so much harder because those ups and downs can sometimes feel so much more extreme. And I wanted people to know that actually that is the reality of what recovery is. Like it comes in highs and lows and you plateau at times, but it's about how you deal with yourself on those days when you're really struggling with stuff. Yeah, I think there's a lot there. And um, 
so when you when you first, how old are you now? Uh, twenty nine. So when you first kind of struggled with anorexia, how old were you? Um, so I developed it when I was about thirteen, but I didn't realise there was anything the matter with me up until my third day in hospital, actually. So um, when I was 13, I had a lot going on at home. Um, I had quite a dysfunctional family. I was also sexually abused. And I kind of had all of this like emotion going on in my head and I didn't really know how to process it. And I was trying to find ways to deal with it without talking to people about it. And that was when the anorexia kicked in. And um, it did start off quite slowly, kind of skipping meals here and there. I did a lot of long distance running, so kind of did more running. But the more running I did and the less food I ate, the better I felt about everything going on. And it kind of like sucked me into this really vicious cycle of like feeling so unsure of who I am, but then getting all of my like self-worth and identity off this kind of voice in my head, which was telling me what to do. And I, I loved it. I loved that it just made everything make sense. And it loved the fact that it gave me this purpose and took me out of the realities of actually what it's like growing up but the thing with anorexia and I'm sure a lot of people will know this is you don't always realize there's something the matter which is why diagnosis is so difficult because you're in this like constant state of denial um so I hid it for four years without talking about it to anyone um with not really being 100% sure whether there was something the matter with me or not I think at times I thought I maybe was a little bit different because I had this voice in my head and I didn't really eat much and I was kind of constantly thinking about food and calories, but it just became normal to me. Some people that are listening who, who hear that you loved it probably wouldn't understand that. Um, yeah. People that haven't ever really struggled with their relationship with food will hear somebody say that and think, well, how can you love something like anorexia or an eating disorder? But it is a very kind of blurred relationship that you have, isn't it? Because it it helps you through those kind of tough times. And when you are going through something like recovery, it it gets it, it's quite hard to kind of I don't know if you found this, but it's quite hard to find out who you actually are without that comfort of the of the eating disorder. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, no, definitely. And you have to yeah, you have to completely rediscover everything. And I think as well, a big thing in recovery is you'd start to get all of those feelings and emotions back that you haven't had for so long. And at the time, like you enjoy not having them and you switch off from them, but then you also don't get the happy feelings as well. But I think when I was unwell, I just assumed I was happy and I was like, yeah, it's fine. Like I'm kind of plodding along with things. But actually when you come to recovery, you get this rush of emotions that you have to then also learn how to deal with and how to talk about them. And then also like that that's normal too yeah that's it, it it's it's a really interesting kind of part of of eating disorders i think and and having the ability to kind of speak out about it because i think sometimes when people have gone through something like an eating disorder they they feel like they can't show the kind the dirtiness of it or the it's almost a bit like a stockholm syndrome as well isn't it where yeah you get where you've got you've got this kind of I mean putting it in the Stockholm syndrome um, analogy you've got this like captor that you that soon rely on and you almost you miss when you're trying to get away from it and it, and it is quite um, it just entangles itself into your life um, so you mentioned about going into hospital was that 
something for you that you could see coming or did you feel like you were suddenly there and you were like okay what what is this what how have I ended up here um so yeah it did all happen quite quickly um so I started going to outpatients um after my GCSEs actually so after my GCSEs I had like my kind of long school holidays and went back to school and my school got in touch with my mum and then I went to my GP and then went to the children's adolescent mental health services and used to go weekly for appointments. Um, but at this point, I still was in this denial phase about it. So I didn't think there was anything the matter with me. Um, I definitely didn't think I had anorexia. I had, at this point, like completely distorted body image. So I didn't think I even looked like an anorexic person, whatever an anorexic person is supposed to look like. And was just so, like, just so convinced that everyone didn't understand what I was going through. That everyone was trying to, like, take away this one thing in my life that made me feel really good. And um, then after six months at CAMS as an outpatient, um, my heart nearly stopped. So I got admitted then to hospital. But the really frustrating thing for me, and I'm sure, again, other people will be able to relate to this, is even when I arrived in hospital, for some reason, I was still convinced that I shouldn't be there. And I spent the first three days like shouting at everyone, like telling people that I hated them. I, I shouted at my mum and told her I never wanted to see her again because I blamed her for the fact that I was in hospital. Um, and then on my third day in hospital, um, I did various, this active, basically this exercise where they got you to draw how you imagined yourself on paper and then they traced around you. So it's like a proper size of your body. And um, I realized after seeing these two images, the one that I drawn and the one that they traced, that my body image was so distorted. And it was like a real eye, eye opener to actually maybe I did have something the matter with me. And I remember like on that Friday night, I was kind of like, I'll just eat and then I can get out of the hospital and stop eating again. But over like the next year in hospital, like things like really gradually progressed for me and I got in a much better place with things. And over the next couple of months, I definitely accepted that something was the matter. Um, yeah, but it was, it, I think the hardest, one of the hardest things that I found in recovery, apart from accepting you've got something wrong is then having to relearn all of those behaviors that you've spent like years of your life teaching yourself that are actually all really unhealthy coping mechanisms and then having to kind of refine other coping mechanisms that might work a bit better or do work much better. I didn't know you did that exercise and it's weird because when I was in hospital they did that with me and it was one of the most eye-opening yeah. exercises I think I ever did in any of the treatment that I went through. Yeah no I can be and what I think what was weird about it is you know like like before you go into hospital and you've got an eating disorder, you do, you get your blood done, you get all of that stuff, you see the number on the scales, everything like that. But that's not, for me, that wasn't like concrete evidence. Mm. Like, but with the, this picture, it was concrete evidence that I needed. So I think, yeah, for me, it was probably the, yeah, the thing that probably changed my whole recovery journey. Yeah. So you went, so were you out of, you out of hospital at about 17, 18? So I went in when I was 17. Um, and then got discharged three months after my 18th birthday. So I was quite lucky because when I, so um, I don't know, I've just told everyone my age. So when, but when I was younger, like there wasn't, I don't think there was as big a wait for cams and the beds weren't as quite, they weren't quite as short of beds and things like that. So when I went into hospital, they didn't kind of get me in for two months and get me out after they'd refed me. But actually 
I had like a much longer kind of time of refeeding. And then when I got to a healthy weight, I was still allowed to stay in the hospital whilst I did treatment and stuff like that in therapy. And I think that was what was, I was very lucky in that sense. And also very lucky that even though I turned 18, they still let me stay a couple of months after my 18th birthday to finish off my treatment instead of going to adults and then probably falling through the system and everything like that. Yeah, so I... So if you went in at 17, I went in when I was 21. Yeah. So that was, I, my math is terrible. This is the reason why I talk for a living. <laughs> um, so that was, I mean, that wasn't that long after, but I was only there. I was there, I, I got admitted urgently, but I was only there for, I think it was only 10 days. And I was very different though, because I, I wasn't anorexic, I was bulimic. So it was more of an intervention um, exercise for them. But I remember that they, one of the, the nurses had said, you know, we, we would want you in longer, but we just don't have the beds. And yeah. that's quite scary to think about, you know, with having the NHS as, they, as it is and the amount of people out there that are struggling with something like eating disorders, there, is, there isn't as much help out there as there should be, which I guess is is what makes you so passionate about the work that you do now. Yeah, I think, I think it's scary that there isn't as well. Like, we, we live like in a society that's so fixated on hitting that crisis point before we intervene. And then when people hit crisis, there aren't beds available. So people live in hospital like you for 10 days. And that's just not long enough. And I think in an ideal world, I think care in the community is so much better because in hospital you get so institutionalized and you have like set meal times and you get used to having this 24 7 support around and yes in some circumstances you have to have hospital admission but i think like what we really should be pushing for is actually early intervention and more community support so people can recover whilst being out and about and living their day-to-day -day lives so tell me about your petition then because this is something that you know, you're really passionate about and you've been working really hard and talking a lot about over, well, how long has it been? The, the, a, longer than a year now, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, I should probably know how long it's been. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, uh, I launched it about a year and a half ago. Um, so I launched it um, off the back. So I got, when I relapsed, I couldn't get support in the NHS because I wasn't underweight. And when I started talking about my experience and what I'd been through, I came across like, thousands of other people who can't access eating disorder treatment because they're not underweight enough and then you have people who are like too underweight for outpatients but then too overweight for inpatients so they're kind of just left in this limbo phase with no absolutely no support whatsoever and I decided that this wasn't acceptable and that eating disorders do come in all shapes and sizes and we need to find a way to actually adapt to that and be accommodating to it so I launched the petition to try and change this. And on like a societal level, I wanted people to start to realize that eating disorders come in all shapes and sizes. And just because someone's kind of physically healthy and eating, it doesn't mean that they're fully recovered and that kind of part of their brain with the eating disorders completely fixed because it probably isn't. Um, and then on like a more government level, I wanted to make sure that actually GPs aren't turning people away because of their BMI, but if they don't have funding in place for beds or community care, it's about having like an honest conversation with that person when they come in and reassuring them and reminding them that they know it's not about weight. Um, so trying to generally change that whole process around BMI. And a big part of that is around GP training 
but also just like a whole cultural change in actually just changing those attitudes towards eating disorders. Because I think whilst we've come such a long way in mental health problems and the stigma that comes with mental illness and everything like that, I think there's still like another layer of stigma when it comes to eating disorders that hasn't yet been tackled. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. I think that the awareness is definitely on the rise, but I don't think that the the help that is there is enough. Because effectively what you're saying to people when they they go to a GP or if they, you know, go to uh, a treatment centre for an assessment and they say, okay, well, yeah, we do, we do think that you'll um, benefit from help and treatment with us, uh, but we're going to have to put you on a waiting list and it'll probably be about 18 months. You're effectively saying to them, you're not sick enough. And yeah. for somebody who is struggling with their mental health, that in itself is you're not enough. You know, you're not doing enough. You're not doing it right. You're not doing bulimia right. You're not doing anorexia right. And it creates this really negative um, spiral effect. And no, yeah, and I think that's what happened to me. Yeah, it's like that competitive nature kicks in, doesn't it? When yeah. To make a point and to be kind of perfect. And yeah. So your, your petition, it's more about getting the, the weight element to be not so important or not so kind of big in the assessment process. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. So I know that people do, when you've got an interval, obviously people do need to get to a healthy weight and for the sake of their bodies and things like that. Like I totally get that. But the thing that I want, yeah, so the thing I want to move is the BMI from the assessments because actually we should be looking at that person's mental state, not their weight. Um, but also to realise that actually someone's weight is like healthy at a different size. So my healthy weight, even though maybe I was the same like height as you, actually could be completely different because I'd have to wait until my periods come back or whatever it is. And actually each of us has a different healthy weight that we're going to go on. And so even if you get to a healthy BMI, that might not be the weight that your body should be at. So it's about removing that and actually just focusing on the other elements in recovery and focusing much more on the mental well-being of individuals and taking like a much more holistic approach as well to things. So do you, do you support the use of weighing in treatment and or, and or normal life? What's, your, what's kind of your opinion? Because I know that there's, and this isn't a loaded question at all, I just think it's quite an interesting to, thing to talk about because I know that there's a lot of people who are dumping the scales in the sense of, I don't want to know what I weigh. I don't want to have, you know, that knowledge because I think it will, or I know it will kind of affect me. So I think, yeah, so I think that it's important. I do think it's important, even though I hate saying that, but I do think for some people it is really important. And I think for me, even though I don't, wouldn't want my BMI, the BMI for my focus of my recovery, I'm aware that someone has to put on weight to start recovery and to be on that journey of recovery. So I think that weighing yourself does come into that when, you, when you're in like hospital admission or when you're getting that extra support. And I think something that helps that person feel less guilty about putting that weight on, particularly for me, is actually being accountable to someone. So having someone like a nurse or a doctor weighing me so that actually I can feel less guilty about my weight increasing because I'm um, yeah, kind of accountable to them, if that makes sense. But I think it shouldn't be the only basis. And at the moment, it is the only basis. Um, and then, 
sorry, the thing about them weighing yourself in day-to-day -day life is I, I don't think it's healthy. And I think the reason I think that is because whenever we weigh ourselves, no matter whether we've put on weight or lost weight or stayed the same, we normally feel pretty rubbish about ourselves anyway. And it's because we just give so much value to weighing scales. And if we just got rid of them altogether, then actually that would make it so much easier. But I completely get the fact that when you've had an eating disorder and you're in recovery, doing that can feel absolutely terrifying. And that can make it a little bit, yeah, I guess make it a little bit more challenging. And maybe for some people, it's about reducing the amount they weigh themselves. So say like you've weighed yourself every day or whatever, reducing that to maybe like once a week and then once every fortnight and then once every month. But then also working out actually why you feel like you need to weigh yourself and what you get out of doing that. Um, and I know for me, like, I guess, like when I have days when I really struggle with my body image, what I've realized now is that actually it's normally something else that triggers that. So it's like stress or work stuff or relationship stuff or whatever it is. And that triggers me to feel hatred towards my body. And once I've worked that out, it actually means that I would give less emphasis to the weighing scales. That makes total sense. And I, I do agree with it. My opinion is just slightly different. And, uh, you know, that's fine. I think that with when it comes to weight, I think that the value of what we put on it and the relationship we have with the number is more important to address. Because if, for example, you had to go... So I know people that have never have stopped weighing themselves because they know it causes too much turmoil. And I think that that's a really healthy thing to do because obviously you want to cut out the things that make you feel like shit. But they've had to go into a doctor's environment or something similar and they've been weighed and it's like suddenly all the good work that they've been doing, all the positive um, work and the kind of the way they've seen themselves and has just kind of been slashed by one step on the scale. So I, I, think that maybe as a society we instead of just kind of throwing the scales away forever maybe we need to start to address why that creates that feeling in our heads does that kind yes. of make sense no, because I, I, I yeah i think that makes sense mm, and and i i think that for me i never weighed myself until i actually went into treatment and it was definitely a problem for me for a while was weight and and that kind of relationship that i had for me, addressing that relationship that I had with the scales was more empowering and being able to stop that number from affecting me was more empowering than, I think, not knowing the number. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And I think that's, I think that's what, I'm, what I've learned definitely over the last year or so um, when I link the whole body image thing back to things that have happened or my feelings or emotions. And for me, that's more of a challenge than the scales, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, but no, it totally, yeah, I think that's, I think quite often we have to address those root problems and then everything else slots into place because how we feel about a number on the scales is like a secondary thing to actually what's really going on. Because mm, it's always so much more, isn't it? You know, it, it, I don't know if you heard this when you were in, in treatment, but I was constantly reminded that fat isn't a feeling. And it used to do my head in because I was like, well, it is a feeling because I'm feeling this. I feel that. But actually, if you take that, that feeling and you condense it down, it's actually, as you said, so much more than that. You know, it could be what's going on in your life. It could be 
fear of um, like of a relationship or lack of control. And there's so much more ingrained into that word than with it. And it's, it's so much that we can't cope with it. So we just put it all into one word and we, we call ourselves fat. Yeah. And actually we shouldn't even be using fat as a negative word anyway, should we? Because it shouldn't be, it's a describing word. And yeah, and I think that's another thing that probably needs to be tackled as well is actually this shouldn't be a negative word. We should try and find a way to, yeah, express ourselves better without using those terminologies. So whereabouts is the petition at now then? And, and where do you see it going in the future? Um, so it's on just over 97,000, I think. Um, and so where it's at now, so... Before the general election, it got in the Labour manifesto. Um, and so I'm kind of following up with the Labour MPs that managed to maintain their seats and working out with them what we can do in government with it, um, while still campaigning um, like Conservatives MPs and also working with some of the Lib Dem MPs around it as well. Um, and then on the 28th of February, we're launching a resource um, in South West London, which is going to be around diagnosis, around early intervention, which will then go out to all GPs and all schools um, as a way to kind of start that conversation going. Um, and then I guess in the long term, it's about getting actual proper kind of ministerial buy-in. So my biggest frustration um, was before uh, Boris Johnson came in as prime minister, um, we had Jackie Joel Price as the minister for mental health and she was very, very good with eating disorders. She understood it. She took the time to get to know it. Um, but I've struggled to kind of get in with the new Minister for Mental Health. Um, so kind of that is what we need to happen next, actually to get in there and have a face-to-face -face meeting and be like, actually, this is what we need to happen. This is an action plan in place. Have you always been quite interested in politics or is it the thing, is it an, an avenue in which that you've got into because of what you believe in? Um, so I worked public affairs uh, for a charity before I started working for myself. Um, so I've always had some interest in it, but I think now my interest is kind of like is peaking because I care so much about the issue. Um, and I think as well, like when you work, when I worked for a charity, like doing public affairs, you're kind of just like one other person doing it. So you don't get to go to a lot of the big meetings. You're doing a lot of like the back work and stuff, which is fine. But I think now another reason why I love it is actually I'm getting out and about and talking to these people who they can actually make change happen. We just have to kind of push them in the right direction to make that happen. So you also have a book, which I mentioned. Um, tell me about that, because obviously it's kind of based around this this topic and um, you it's something that you kind of promote and you've had some really, really great reviews and things on that. So just give me a little bit of a uh, bio about your book. Um, so my, yes, it's basically the whole journey of my recovery. So from like my childhood right up until um, last year, um, I kind of finished writing it. Um, and it basically goes into so much more detail about recovery, about eating disorders, about managing well-being, about kind of spotting the signs, and then also like how you can manage your recovery. And it's a very honest kind of journey of actually this is what it was like being at rock bottom. This is what it was like when I was when my recovery started, and then it went down, and then it went, do you know what I mean? So it does share that real kind of, I guess like what we were saying at the start, like the ups and downs of it. Um, and then my mum writes three chapters, I think it is, of the book, um, which gives like a bit of a parental insight into it. Um, 
because I think quite often for parents or carers you they don't always they don't feel like they're understood a lot of the time they feel like they're kind of left in the lurch a little bit and there's not any support for them and with my book I wanted to make sure that actually parents and carers know that yes it's a really difficult situation but actually this is what works this is what helps and that they're not alone in their struggle because I think quite often they feel embarrassed as well don't they about what their child might be going through or they blame themselves for it so I wanted to make sure in my book it had something around actually it is really difficult being a parent or carer but actually this is what you can do for that extra support. How did your mum find kind of opening up and writing about that? Um, I think she found it quite challenging I think for me and my mum it was a massive learning curve so my relationship with my mum's always been a bit hit and miss um, so growing up we had quite a fiery relationship um, and then I got unwell and then kind of shut her out from everything and like yeah just when I was in hospital I just never wanted to see her to be honest and I my parents got divorced after I came out of hospital and that was like a whole other kind of spanner in the works of it and um I went away traveling for a year and when I came back me and my mom were like in a better place but I think the book helped bring us closer together because we were able to talk like in detail about actually what had happened and Kind of reflect on it and there were things that my mum blamed herself for which I then could kind of actually reassure her that she wasn't to be blamed for so all of these kind of extra bits were so important and so much part of it how did was there anything that she said that you kind of thought oh like I didn't I didn't even think that you could feel that or think that um so I think the main thing was um about my brother um my younger brother actually so I am one of five and there's four of us who are like a year apart and then my younger sister Molly is a lot younger than us um she's eight years younger than me I think um and so I knew I so I for her it was like she was kind of sheltered from it she knew something was going on but she was quite sheltered um but my younger brother and my older brother and older sister my older brother lived in Australia at the time and my older sister was at uni and whilst it was very difficult for all of them I think a massive amount of the brunt kind of went on my younger brother, who's a year younger than me. And before I went into hospital properly, when I was still as I was still an outpatient, um, Samuel quite often had to kind of sit with me and have breakfast and kind of tell my mum if I hadn't eaten anything. And for him, it was a really difficult situation to be in because it wasn't like he he didn't know how to cope with it. He didn't know who to talk to. And I think for me, when I read this in the book about that my mum had written, like the bit she'd written. I just felt so awful actually that I'd kind of put him through that without realizing. And I think that's the really scary thing with eating disorders is you get so wrapped up in yourself and in doing what you want to do. And it's not your fault because you're ill, but at the same time, it is having an impact on everyone around you. And I think particularly with siblings, it can be really difficult for them to know where to go to for that support and what support they can actually get. So, you do a lot of kind of speaking and um, obviously talking to people about your story and about the petition and the book. Um, how did you find that first kind of those first few times of kind of opening up? And did you ever have any any feelings of, oh, my gosh, like if I put this book out to the world, this is basically my soul? You know, everyone's going to know everything about me. Was there any fear there or was there any part of, you know, that that eating disorder mindset that was still quite, that was latent, but they're going, you know, this is our secret. You, you can't share it. 
Um, yeah, I think so. So my biggest fear was that people would look at me and think that I didn't look like I had an eating disorder. And I had to really, I, I did have to, I, at first, definitely, I had to find a way to deal with that. Um, because people did often comment on my weight when I went on the TV and like the amount of times I've been called like a fat anorexic person is just ridiculous. And it's like things like that, that I had to then learn to navigate. Um, but if I'm honest, I didn't realize half of this stuff when I wrote my book. Um, I think I was so like excited that I'd had this like publishing contract through and I'd always wanted to write a book. So I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like it's going to be really fun. Like I'm doing this for other people. Um, and then when it came out, it kind of hit home actually what I'd done. Um, but I am, yeah, I don't regret it at all. Um, and writing the book I found very therapeutic and I really enjoyed writing it. Um, but I think it's been a massive learning curve actually. Like, and I also think something that I'm learning at the moment is you, like you give so much out on social media and kind of in interviews and when you tell your story that quite often people feel like they really know you and they do but only up to a point. And I think sometimes I have to deal with like those kind of boundaries a little bit. And at times I struggle with that. Most people really respect boundaries, but over the last like couple of weeks, I've had a few people who haven't really respected the boundary aspect of things. Um, so I'm having to kind of learn to deal with that as well. I literally, if this was a video podcast, people have seen my eyes like widen and like <laughs> hor hor horrified like shock that people have, have used the words fat anorexic yeah it was yeah it really annoyed me <laughs> is this like trolls or is this somebody who's kind of in air quotation marks meant well like um so i think it, the people that mean well will comment on my weight and be like you look really healthy which <clears> i'm sure <throat> you know that like, when you've had an eating disorder or someone calls you healthy it's like the worst comment ever yeah um, and I kind of let that stuff go. But yeah, the fat anorexic comments, I think, tend to be from trolls, um, which I guess when you open yourself up to the public, you're going to get a few, aren't you? And there's no way, like, real way around that. Yeah, I guess it's kind of building that, that outer shell a little bit and, and letting it, learning to let it deflect off. Yeah. Um, I just, yeah, it's kind of floored me that, that I wouldn't have expected that at all. Um, do you, do you find that, uh, you kind of mentioned that people think that they know you, do you think that people make assumptions about eating disorders, whether it be yours or in general? Yeah, no, I do. I think people still think that eating disorders are quite a self-centered thing. Um, and that it's kind of like a one size fits all for everyone with an eating disorder. Um, and people assume, people assume things like you've got an eating disorder, which means you don't eat cake or you only eat certain foods. And I'm like, well, actually, it's not, it's not always like that. Um, and I think that's what's been really interesting, actually, is learning those assumptions that people have and then making sense of them and trying to come back a bit on them a bit more. Um, and most of it, I think, is just people just don't understand. But some of them come across quite judgmentally. Uh, particularly things around being self-centered and I think when it's those ones that happen they're the ones that actually we need to be like actually no wait stop like this is not right um uh and I think as well something that comes up quite a bit is when people tell you to just eat something and I'm like well it's kind of not that easy like if it was that easy we'd probably just do it um so trying to kind of explain all of that stuff to people but interestingly like when I go into schools and stuff like 
particularly with the younger age groups, like kind of like your six, seven and eight, they just don't hold back and they ask things like that. And, and I don't, I don't mind it because I'm actually like, it's so good that they're asking now than waiting until like, I don't know, their late teens and then starting to question all of this stuff that's going on. But actually the fact that they feel comfortable to ask it, I think that actually people, other people should feel like that and we shouldn't shy away from these kind of questions. I think that's quite a testament to you though as well because I think you have to be in the right environment to be able to ask those questions no matter what age you are um especially when you're younger I think you need to you need to feel safe in in the environment you're with so that I think that is very much a testament to the fact that you're the one doing doing the talk or the speaking (laughs) um do you so what age like what age do you go down to to go and talk to schools you're five but at your five your five, your six, and your seven, it's more like general mental health stuff. It's not focused as much on eating disorders because I know, whilst we know that eating disorders are starting at a young, much younger ages nowadays, I think, it's, I think it's better to talk more broadly about mental health and actually get them to understand that we all have mental health and we all have to find a way to manage it. So with younger ages, it's more about general mental health and getting them to develop those own, their own coping mechanisms. And do you think that we need to put that into into schools more, kind of into into younger children, but to kind of combat this early onset of mental health issues and eating disorders? Or do you think it's more of the case of if you talk about the health in general um, without kind of putting out overblown uh, extreme statements such as like if you don't eat this you will be healthy that kind of thing do you how do you think we need to combat it it because there are younger and younger children that are starting to develop eating disorders um and mental health issues so how can we how can we start to combat it so i think it's just about trying to open up that question further so and those conversations so to kind of make young people aware of all mental health problems and get them to talk about it and feel okay talking about it because I think whether you develop an eating disorder or you start self-harming it's all a secondary thing of something else that's going on so we have to get them to be able to talk about their feelings and their emotions and when we can do that they're less likely to then develop a full-blown mental illness Um, and I think the way to do that is to start talking to them in schools and to go in at an early age and actually start having those conversations Um, but also do like alongside that you need to do an educational piece with teachers and an educational piece with parents and carers because if you only do children then when they go home they might not get that support at home or they might tell their parents what's going on and their parents might be embarrassed or whatever it is so I think if you're going to like we need to do it but we need to have a whole system approach put in place to actually make it successful yeah I I definitely agree with you I think a, a lot of it is about the schools but also about the uh, wider outreach because you can you can do all the best work in school but it's home that where a lot of the kind of behaviors and things will play out um and also usually it's home where when you're younger especially where if there is going to be some element of trauma or stress that that's most likely where the brunt of it is either going to be coped with or it's going to happen do you go to schools kind of all in all different areas around the country? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much wherever. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, I'm based in London, 
but yeah, travel kind of most weeks. So tomorrow I'm going somewhere in the middle of nowhere in the north. Um, I'm still not really sure where it is. I basically just get on a train and go and then get like walk, use my Google Maps to try and find the school. Um, and it works quite well, so it's fine. I did a talk down in London quite a few years ago at a school and I found that the cultural differences of um, the pupils there was actually really interesting as well in terms of mental health Um, because at at this particular school there were quite a lot of um, people who were from not white backgrounds and um, in their culture men didn't talk men didn't talk about their feelings especially so I found that really interesting about how how society has these little pockets of like what's right and wrong and how that can affect people's mental health um yeah like particularly I think particularly with eating disorders is there's still that kind of assumption that they're only for kind of like teenage white girls but actually like when you go into schools where there's a huge range of diversity there will be a huge number of people with eating disorders that they don't feel able to tell their parents because of that cultural background. And I think it means that a lot of these young people are struggling, but they're so unable to actually open up and talk about things. Yeah, and, and I think that that's... I think the whole eating disorders are just for middle-class white girls with nothing better to do being yeah. uh, an opinion is something that is so ingrained into society but it is so frustrating because it's yeah. just not true. <laughs> I remember I met something that really changed my outlook on it was um, I was in treatment in outpatient treatment with a guy who was in his late sixties, who was an anorexic. And I was like, what? A, you're in your sixties. B, you're a guy. Like what? This is just mad. <laughs> But, and that's me who was in that, you know, I, I was in the same kind of bubble of, of having a mental illness and, and having to go through treatment. But we just don't think about the fact that, you know, everybody has mental health. So therefore, everybody could, is, could be susceptible to mental illness of one form or another. It doesn't choose, you know, anorexia doesn't go and see somebody who is a male uh, yeah. or female persuasion and go oh yeah I'll pick you because you're a woman but I'll leave the guy alone like yeah, it yeah, just doesn't do that no. <laughs> um so we've kind of talked about your book and about the petition and is there what does your life look like now from you know when when for over the last couple of years because I guess it's kind of changed quite a lot what what's a day in the life of hope look like um uh so very very different every day um so I normally get up um and normally clear my emails if I'm in London for the day and then if I'm in London for the day I've normally got meetings in parliament um or various meetings in schools um or working within a school for the day um, and then my week's basically kind of made up of a couple of days a week in school to then doing maybe one corporate talk every fortnight to then a day or two in Parliament um, and then doing some work with the NHS as well. Um, and then the rest of the time, um, I do a lot of writing in my spare time um, and kind of work on like different aspects of the campaign and things like that. 
sometimes I'm like, I don't really know what I do all day. Um, particularly like when I've been at home and I'm like, yeah, but I do, yeah, obviously like I work, but you know, like when you're a bit like, oh, I don't know what I've achieved today. Um, yeah, so, but it's, I love, I love it. And I love, I love the flexibility of what I do. So I think like a big thing for me is actually having that kind of flexibility to do, to work when I want to work, to manage my time, how I want to do it. Like if I get an idea, I can go and roll with the idea and see. And I think that's something that I, I really loved because I love that autonomy. Um, and like, don't get me wrong, like at times it's stressful if I don't have enough work coming in and stuff. Um, but yeah, most of the time I absolutely love it. Like you've said earlier, like you're very focused and you're quite stubborn in terms of like, if you want to do something, you'll do it. What do you do to relax? Because you sound so like on it all the time and productive. What like what do you do on lazy days? Um, I normally watch something on Netflix. So yeah, I might yeah watch something all day. Um, um, I cycle quite a bit, so I might go out on my bike um, for a couple of hours um, and do like a longer ride with lunch and stuff with friends. Um, hang out with my little sister quite a lot. Um, yeah, I think I think I've kind of worked it like I've got. I think I'm quite lucky because I've worked out what friends I want to see when I don't want to come into health stuff. Um, where we go out and we like go to pubs or whatever, and it's really fun, and we don't have to talk about the mental health stuff. And then I've got other friends that I can go out for dinner with, and we can discuss mental health stuff. Um, but it's definitely I definitely need to get better at relaxing. I'd say I'm not great at it, um, and I think part of that is that I really care about. I just, I really care about this and I don't want to miss something. And I think, yeah, so I, I something that I need to work on is relaxing more. <laughs> if you ever want any tips, I'm your girl to come to. I know all the crap TV shows. <laughs> <laughs> I've usually got them on in the background while I'm like doing my work. Oh, nice. I'm terrible, honestly. I'm, I've always say like, I feel like the, the laziest busy person because I'll get all the work done and I'm always, I'm always doing something in regards to work, but I've always got like, I don't know, an audio book in the background or like something just to be, just to, so I can like chill out at the same time. Yeah, I know that makes, yeah. <laughs> so um, tell everybody kind of where they can find you and obviously we're going to put a link to the petition um, in the show notes. So if you've listened to this, make sure you go over there, but yeah, tell us where we can find you. Um, so I'm on Instagram um, as just hope Virgo with an underscore um, and then Twitter just as hope Virgo. Um, and then my website is www.hopevirgo.com. And how, and where can people buy the book? Um, oh yeah. On Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> that little chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> amazing um well thank you so much for today um it's been really lovely and also I think it's been really good to kind of talk about we haven't really ever had anybody like you on and I think that these are the kind of conversations that we need to start to be able to have um and your kind of openness and your positivity and like the work you do is just incredible so Thank you for spending some time with me today. I really appreciate it. So as always, guys, don't forget to subscribe to Tribe Talk for the latest episodes. Follow me on Instagram at MJAndrew and the podcast at Tribe Talk Podcast. And I'm going to put all of Hope's stuff online, on, uh, on, uh, online stuff on the show notes so you can find them there. And we will see you again soon. 